All right, so if you weren't with us last week, we started Bible Q&A. We still have a TV on. There we go. Okay, we started Bible Q&A last week, and uh, we did not get to answer all three questions that we were trying to answer. So this week, we're going to uh, start off with a question that we didn't get to last week, and then we're pretty much only going to have time for one more question because they were just... Man, these were some some longer answers, some deeper questions. So if you would, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, okay. So our first question that we have tonight is... In 1 Samuel, now don't be confused. In 1 Samuel 16, an evil spirit from the Lord comes upon Saul. What is this and why? So, an evil spirit from the Lord. Yeah, and uh, I definitely remember this tripping me up when I first came across it when I was reading through the Bible. I'm like, what in the world does that mean? So, to truly answer this question, we really do need to set some context here on what was taking place, what happened leading up to when we read this, this whole thing about an evil spirit from the Lord. So 1 Samuel 15, um, the first point on your paper, uh, you know, Saul is the king of Israel. He's the first anointed king of Israel, as it were. And so God's blessing is upon Saul. And uh, I mean, really, Saul is a type of Christ even because he's the first king of the nation of Israel. So we get to 1 Samuel 15 and we find that God tells Saul to go and to utterly destroy Amalek. Utterly destroy Amalek. So in 1 Samuel 15 verse 3, he tells him now, go and smite Amalek and do what? Utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. This is God's command to Saul. Go in and do what? Utterly destroy, destroy, right? So get rid of everything. Take it all completely out. Next, we're going to find that Saul did not obey the commandment of the Lord. Look in verse 9. It says, but Saul... And the people spared Agag, which would be the king of the Amalekites, spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not do what? Utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. So what again was the command? I'm just going to make sure we got this. To do what? Utterly destroy Okay, there we go. All the right. Go destroy, utterly destroy all the stuff, all of it. And then we read in verse nine that it says, "Notice it says, but Saul and the people did this. Saul and the people did this. So Saul did not obey the commandment of the Lord. He had one command. It's kind of like Adam and Eve, right? Like, hey, you can eat like eat of anything, but don't eat of that tree." At this point in time, this is like the one thing. This is the one commandment. Saul, go do this. And they did not do that. They didn't utterly destroy everything. 
And then it gets even better because this is, man, it's almost like we could rewind back into the Garden of Eden right here, right? Because it's like, you know, Adam, what did you do? Well, you know, that woman that you gave me, she made me eat of that, of that fruit. Eve, what did you do? Well, the serpent made me do it, right? Saul is a whole lot like this, as we'll see here. So Saul refuses to take responsibility for his actions. 1 Samuel 15, verse 15. And Saul said, notice what he says, they, <laughs> the people, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God and to, and to the rest, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. You notice that it's they brought the stuff from Amalek? For, I mean, they, the people, spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen, but then he tries to like justify it. Well, it's to sacrifice to God. And then, <laughs> so it's they did this, the people did this, and then he goes, he says, and the rest we utterly destroyed. Like, he kind of takes credit where it's like, well, see, I did obey. Like, we utterly destroyed everything else. And then look in verses 20 and 21. It says, And Saul said unto Samuel, again, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have, and there he admits it, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. So Saul not only doesn't follow through with the commandment that God gave him, he then won't even accept responsibility for what he's done and starts pawning it off on his people. Even though he's the king and the leader and the one that should have been keeping an eye on what the people were doing. He won't take responsibility for his own actions or the actions of the people that he was actually in charge of. So in verse 23, 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, this is what Samuel then says back to Saul. He says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. So at this point, right, Saul is the first anointed king of Israel. He's leading the people. He's actually, at first, he's, he's actually a pretty good king. And then we get to this point here where he just flat out disobeys God, a, a clear commandment that God has given him. So Samuel tells him, all right, because you've rejected what God told you, God is now going to reject you. So Saul is rejected by God as the king of Israel. So this is what has transpired as we lead in to 1 Samuel 16. Okay, God has given him a command. He disobeys. God rejects him as king. So go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Samuel 16, and we'll look at verse 13. Because if you're familiar with 1 Samuel, if you're familiar with the life of Saul and David, then you're probably somewhat familiar with this already, but we, knew, we know that David is the next man in line, right? David is going to be the anointed king because he is the man after God's own heart. So, First uh, Samuel 16, verse 13, it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up 
and went to Ramah. So uh, if you're familiar with the story, uh, God tells Samuel to go find, you know, basically Jesse's family, uh, David's, David's dad and, and his family. And he tells him, you know, you, you go through all the sons and I'll tell you which one I'm going to anoint as king. He goes through this whole thing. That's when we find out that David is in fact going to be the next anointed king of Israel. And this one God picked. Because Saul, who picked Saul? I mean, God, God allowed it, God had a hand in it, but who did? Yes, Israel. The people, the people chose Saul. Do you know why? Mm-hmm. He was pretty. He was tall. He was handsome. He's what you would picture when you wanted a king leading you. And God said, I don't look on the outward appearance. I look on the inside. And that's when we find David, the young boy David. And so Samuel anoints him. And then we find in the very next verse, this, this, uh, this statement that pops up. Right after David is anointed, verse 14 says, But the Spirit of the Lord, notice it's a capital S, the Spirit of the Lord. So we know, what, which Spirit is this? This is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was on Saul at this time. Leading up to this, the Holy Spirit was on him. And we know that there's no permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit like there is today in the Old Testament times. So here, the Holy Spirit would come on to someone and leave. That The Holy Spirit would leave. There was no permanent indwelling. So Saul had the Spirit of the Lord inside him. It says, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. I want you to notice too, an evil spirit. Spirit is lowercase. It's a small s. So what's up with this? The Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubles Saul. So your first point here, do not panic. The verse says an evil spirit from the Lord. From is your blank. An evil spirit from the Lord, not an evil spirit of the Lord. God doesn't have some part of him that's an evil spirit that he can send out and dispatch to do his evil bidding that he wants done. It says an evil spirit from the Lord. So how do we work this out? How do we wrap our minds around this? Well, there's a couple of different ways that we're going to work through here. So the first point that we have is evil, evil can be used as judgment. It can be. And this could be what we're looking at here. All right? Saul is being judged because he, he rejected the commandment of God, so God rejected him from being king. So this could be what we're dealing with, that God is using the forces of evil to judge Saul. In Psalm 78, 49 on your paper, it says, He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, and indignation and trouble by sending evil angels among them. We could look at that and think, well, okay, maybe God, maybe God uses the devil and his angels to go out and do his bidding, to, to enforce judgment on people. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's verse 1 and then 4 through 5. It's on your paper, right? Did I put it back on your paper? Mm-hmm. Oh, good. I erased it last week because we ran out of room, and then I wasn't sure if I gave it back to you. So 1 Corinthians 5, it says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication 
as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. So that kind of sets the context. And then Paul says, you're not dealing with this person. You're still letting them come and fellowship with you and you won't rebuke them for what they're doing. So then he goes on to say in verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto who? Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So reading just a couple of verses, and you can, I mean, you can read through the Bible. There's, there's more. These are just a couple to show you that, you know, the, the forces of evil can be used by God as a means of judgment, right? He's, he's basically saying, and I mean, if you've fallen into heinous sin, you know exactly what this is talking about, to deliver such an one uh, unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I know it all too well. And some of you in here might know it all too well. That when you do fall into sin and you fall away from God, that's exactly what happens. We, we covered this in spiritual warfare. How when we're not walking with the Lord and we're basically opening up a four rent sign to the, to the forces of evil that say, come on, I'll give you a place to stay. Come on in. Right? You're delivered over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh which God uses so that when Christ returns, you'll be saved in that day. The spirit, the soul will be saved. But the flesh had to be destroyed. And sometimes God will use the devil. He'll use the world. He'll use things that are not, not exactly what he would even want to use with us. He would rather have his loving hand, his guiding hands on our lives. But when we refuse, he says, you know what? I've got to deliver you over to Satan so that you, the flesh will be destroyed because I want you back. So, evil can be used as judgment. Next, evil can also be used as testing and trial. I'm sure you're very familiar with the book of Job. Job 1, verses 8 through 12 on your paper. And the Lord said unto... Who is this again? Satan. Satan. Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect man and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. God himself giving Satan permission to send Job through trials and tribulations. He said, just don't touch his life. You don't lay a finger on Job. Go. I'll show you that my servant does serve me and it's not for naught. So... Evil can be used as testing and trial. We see it here in the book of Job. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul lived through the same kind of thing. He says, Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given unto me. Given unto me, right? Like this is like, he's made like, here was a gift from God to me. It was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of who? Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above above measure. And if anybody 
that's not Christ, any, any Christian that we've ever known or ever read about, if there was anyone that could, could be in danger of becoming exalted and very prideful, very narcissistic, it would be Paul. Paul could easily look back at all the work he had done and get very, very proud, very arrogant. He could begin exalting himself. People were exalting him like he was the guy, right? Even in the book of 1 Corinthians, we read that. He's like, look, you guys are babies. You know, oh, I'm Apollos' disciple. Oh, I'm Paul's disciple. Like, no, we're all the disciples of Christ. Paul could. But he said that there was given unto him a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet him. So that he didn't get so uh, big-headed that he floated away. So, we can see that evil can be used as testing and trial. Evil can be used as judgment. So, conclusion one. I've come up with two conclusions, and I don't personally land on this first one. I land on the second one. But this is a consideration for sure. Because of Saul's disobedience, because of Saul's disobedience, an evil spirit was dispatched as judgment upon him. We could see it that way. Because of his disobedience, God said, you know what, kind of like Paul was saying to the church in Corinth, I need to deliver you over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that your spirit will be saved. We could see it that way. I personally don't. So another consideration. Here's something to think about. Because these words show up, right? You got the word spirit. And I think that's why our mind immediately starts running with like an interdimensional being, right? Like an angel or a fallen angel or one of uh, the devil's angels. We hear spirit and we immediately go there, right? An evil spirit. Oh, it's got to be something that's, that we can't see, something we can't touch, something that was troubling him was this evil spirit. But the word spirit can also mean temper, like your own temperament, disposition of mind, either habitual or temporary. The word spirit can also carry this connotation with it. And even the word evil, like we think evil, what, what do you guys think? Give me your definition of evil. Bad. Bad. Evil. Not good. Unrighteous. Not good. Unrighteous. That's good. Evil. Evil. Your definition of evil is evil? Good work. Demonic. Demonic. Okay. Yeah, these are good. These are the things that we do associate with evil, right? The opposite of God. Everything that's wrong with this world around us. Evil also carries with it the definition of unfortunate, unhappy, producing sorrow, distress, injury, or calamity, or even troublous. Evil carries that definition with it also. So think about this. Unfortunate or unhappy disposition of mind. This is more where I lean when we read what it's talking about here. So think about this. For your own life, what is the natural consequence of turning from the Spirit of God and His leading? Our spirit is affected, right? Our spirit is affected. In the context following this statement, this evil spirit from the Lord, David is then employed to play the harp to cast out the evil spirit. <laughs> if this were a literal evil spirit, like a demonic entity, music would not cause it to flee, right? But music does calm the savage beast. 
an evil spirit within yourself. I mean, can you imagine? Like, there's a, like Saul is possessed. Let's pretend that Saul is possessed here. There's an evil spirit inside him, indwelling him. And David comes, and he doesn't play rock music. He plays the harp. And this is going to somehow scare an evil spirit out of Saul or cause it to flee. Personally, I don't think that makes sense. I really don't, because this is the context that follows that statement. Let's go ahead and read verses 15 to 23. It says, And Saul's servant said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. Let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on an harp. And it shall come to pass, when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And Saul said unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well and bring him to me. Then answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, that is cunning in playing, and a mighty valiant man, and a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, Send me David thy son, which is with, is with the sheep. And Jesse took an ass laden with bread and a bottle of wine and a kid and sent them by David, by David his son unto Saul. And David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David, I pray thee, stand before me, for he hath found favor in my sight. And it came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took an harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Do you guys ever get that? Say you're maybe a little depressed or anxious, and then something happens. Maybe someone reaches out to you. Maybe a loved one is just very reassuring to you in that it just it lifts, right? You almost feel like, okay, okay, everything's okay now. Right? You guys ever get that? I mean, I get that. I definitely get that. Just even by the wording at the end of this chapter, when David took the harp and played with his hand, Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. So conclusion two, this is where I land. This is what I believe the evil spirit from the Lord is. Because of Saul's disobedience, God took his protective hand from him, making him fair game to all the powers of darkness. The evil spirit was his own spirit, which had been darkened by his own choice. To disobey God, to walk away from God, to not follow the Lord's commandments. And I believe it was his own spirit. That evil spirit was just an unhappy unfortunate disposition of mind, his temperament. I believe that that's what it means. So, anybody want to add anything to that? Disagree with me? Tell me I'm wrong? Tell me I'm stupid? Or is there some other way that you see it, maybe? This is, this is what I've come up with. No? Okay. You guys tired? I mean, I know it's pretty humid today, but... You're very, you're very blank today. Okay, then we'll move on to the next question. <laughs> you know, I'm going to have somebody else. You know what, Trent, why don't you come up and teach this next one? That'll wake you up. <laughs> All right. You can do this. Oh, the notes are right here. All you got to do is read. All right. Next question. This was, uh, was kind of interesting. I read this and went, 
Okay, this is like a very, uh, this is a very broad question here, kind of. What exactly does Genesis 3.15 mean? What exactly does it mean? So let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Let me get a volunteer that needs to wake up to read Genesis 3.15, please. Okay, you're one of the awake ones. Go ahead. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Okay, so what exactly does this mean? Again, we need context. We need to know what's going on here. So in the context... You guys are, I'm sure, familiar with this. Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? One command, don't eat of that tree. You can eat anything you want here. Don't eat of that tree. So, in verses 1 through 7, they eat of the tree. And then in verse 8 in chapter 3, then they hide themselves from God, right? Because they realize they're naked. God's like, who told you you're naked? Right? Because God knows. So they hide themselves from God. Adam and Eve play the blame game for their own sin, which we touched on earlier. Then in verse 14, the serpent is cursed. The serpent is is given a curse there. And then we get into verse 15. Again, I'm going to read it on your paper. He said, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So the first thing we see here to explain this verse is enmity between Satan and mankind, or the serpent and mankind in this case. So enmity, what is enmity? It is the quality of being, uh, that should be and, not and. The quality of being and, can you guess? Enemy. Enemy, yes, it sounds just like enmity. Yes, it is the quality of being an enemy, not no. Enemy. Enemy. You weren't supposed to hear that. You're way too close for me to not hear that. I know. So do I. Enemy. The quality of being an enemy. The opposite of friendship. It is ill will, hatred, or unfriendly dispositions. So from this point forward, see, you got to kind of bear this in mind. Though the serpent and man or the devil and man, they would be enemies. They really hadn't had any interaction yet. So, you know, Satan's already scheming. He's already working on how he's going to try and get this new creation that God has to fall. So they really were enemies, but Adam and Eve didn't know it yet, right? All they knew was the the garden they had been put in and God. That was it. That's all they knew. So they didn't have this enemy yet, as it were. So when this finally transpires... Right? They wouldn't have even known that. Eve wouldn't have known that until she ate of that fruit. She wouldn't have understood. Right? They had no concept of evil. They only knew good because they only knew God. There was no concept. I mean, we, can't, we really can't wrap our minds around that, can we, at this point? Can you fathom only good and no evil? No, it's impossible. It's like trying to fathom eternity or you know, a time that doesn't end or never started. We can't, we can't wrap our minds around it. It's impossible. Same way with evil at this point. So God said at this point, I'm going to put enmity between you two. And from that day forward, man and Satan are, in fact, enemies. 1 Peter 5.8, you guys know this. Right? Be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, as a what? 
roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to devour us. He's our enemy. And then in Revelation 12.10, that's where it refers to the devil as the accuser of the brethren. He never tires. Kind of like he did in Job chapter 1, right? Accusing Job before God. He never tires. He is the accuser of the brethren. He's accusing us day and night of the things that we let slip. I can, you can almost hear him, right? Like, that, they claim to be yours, huh? Did you see that? Did you see what they did? Do you really believe that you have their heart? Always accusing us day and night. The accuser of the brethren. From this point forward, there was enmity. That quality of being an enemy between mankind and the devil. And then next, so he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. So we find here the seed of the serpent, right? Because it says thy seed, thy seed and her seed. So uh, could I get everybody to turn to Matthew 13? And then I'm going to need four volunteers to not go to Matthew 13. Four volunteers. Jordan, can you go to Matthew 3, verse 7? Trent? Matthew 12:34, Travis, Matthew 23:23, 23, 23, and then Chrissy, John 8:44. Everyone else to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13. I'll find it eventually. There we go. Matthew 13. So read along with me here in verses 24 through 30 in Matthew 13. It says, Another parable put he forth unto them, unto the disciples, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while, the, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we shall gather them up, that, that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest... I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Go ahead and look at verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. What did that mean? He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus out giving the gospel, the good word. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the what? Children, children of the wicked one. The children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels. So we see here that he's giving up this parable to say that there are children of the wicked one out there. And this would be more the, the spiritual seed of the devil. And then Matthew 3, 7, if you would. 
For when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Okay, 1234. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. 2333. Uh, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? And then John 844. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. So you notice with those first three that you heard there, he referred to the Pharisees as what? Generation, Generation of vipers. What are vipers? Snakes. Snakes like the serpent and then he even says in the Matthew 23 reference he even says serpents and vipers and then we find there in John chapter 8 he even says ye are of your father the devil so when he said I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed oh the devil has a seed he definitely has a spiritual seed and I'll be honest I never really even put that together until studying this Jesus kept calling them serpents and vipers and I'm like, oh, now I get it. Now I get why he chose to call them serpents and vipers because they are, in fact, of their father, the devil. They're more interested in working their way to God than they are God's way of God coming to them and them just having to humbly call out to Christ. They are, in fact, the spiritual seed, but I believe there will also be a physical seed. Go ahead and turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians 2. So there is, without a doubt, a spiritual seed. The serpent has a spiritual seed, but this physical seed, we find his name come up a few different ways in the Scripture. I didn't list them all out exhaustively. If you want that, you go ahead and have that study on your own. But the physical seed, the physical seed of the devil is the Antichrist. In Daniel 7, he's called the little horn. He's also called the prince that shall come. Can I get a volunteer to read 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3? Nick. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. That man of sin... The what of perdition? Son of perdition. Because he's got a father. And it's not God. It's not Jesus. He's got a father. And he's the son of perdition. An interesting little side note that has nothing to do with this part. That phrase shows up one other time in your Bible. Son of perdition. Do you know who's called that? Judas. Judas. It's the only other time it shows up in your Bible. Son of perdition. Judas. Satan's seed? I would say so. So there is a seed of the serpent. There's a spiritual seed and there is a physical seed that will be here when it's all going down <laughs> during the tribulation period. There will be the physical seed of Satan. So next, he says, between thy seed and her seed. So we had the seed of the serpent. Now we have the seed of the woman. This right here is a messianic promise. 
It's the first messianic promise in the Bible. And the reason being, and this is just good biology, women do not have seed. Seed is from the man. So right here, right there in Genesis chapter 3, we find out there will be no earthly man involved. Now, if you only had the book of Genesis, you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know that. But it should at least stand out to make you say, hold on, the seed of the woman? The woman doesn't have the seed. So it should cause you to at least start to think, what does that mean? What is this all about? Well, we've got the rest of the Bible, fortunately, that tells us what that was all about. But this is the messianic promise that God would have someone that was not born of a man that would come and it would come through the woman. And we know that man as Jesus Christ. Go ahead and turn to Isaiah 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Be pretty familiar with this too. I get a volunteer to read verse 14. Isaiah 7, 14. Not everybody at once. Trey. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then we know from the book of Matthew and one of the other Gospels, what does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. A virgin is going to conceive and bring forth a son, and you're going to call that son God with us. You're going to call him God. This was a messianic promise that it would come through the seed of a woman because there is no seed within a woman. So it is Jesus. We're not going to turn to You can look up those other references in Matthew 1.12 and Galatians 4.4. But um, basically it's the same thing. Matthew 1.12, it talks about His name is Emmanuel, God with us. Galatians 4.4 is um, where it says made of the made of a woman, basically not, not of a man, something to that effect. But you can look those up. But the seed of a woman just means that there would be no earthly father because a woman does not have a seed. And then next it says, it shall bruise thy head. Jesus will bruise the head of Satan. And this is a mortal wound. Um, keep, you know what, you can find it again anyway. Go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. Jesus will bruise the head of Satan. You notice it says He will bruise the head of the serpent, but the serpent will only bruise the heel of the seed. Jesus will bruise the head of Satan, and this is a mortal wound. It is a mortal wound. Bruising the head... He's going to take out the devil one day. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, it says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, after the thousand years is over, he must be loosed a little season. Go ahead and look in verse 7. It says, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. 
and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast, or the Antichrist, and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night. How long? Forever and ever. And it is at this point that Jesus will bruise the head of the serpent. He's done. He doesn't get another chance. He's cast into the lake of fire and he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And if you finish out this chapter, you read that this is where the great white throne judgment takes place. And all those who rejected God through their life, all those who chose not to accept Christ, not to follow God, they are cast into the exact same place. And then when we hit chapter 21 in the book of Revelation, it's all about a new heaven and a new earth where the former things are done away with. They're passed away and all things are new where we do get to live with Him forever and ever and ever. No more sin. No more sorrow. No more heartache. It's all done. So He will bruise the head of the serpent. But the serpent will bruise the heel of Jesus. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, you've got to think, the devil had to have believed that he won, right? He had to have believed that he won when he bruised the heel of Jesus. Because by all accounts, it looks like, all right, he's gone. He's dead. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1-4. through 4. Can I get a volunteer? Please? Who hasn't read? Liz. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I deliver unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Okay, so that is the bruise to the heel. Because he was bruised, he was killed. On the cross. But it was only a bruise to the heel because he didn't stay dead. And that is, in fact, the gospel. That three days later, he rose from that grave, defeating sin, defeating death, defeating the devil, which you find out if you read into 1 John, that that's why he came, was to destroy the works of the devil. It was only a bruise to the heel because Jesus did not stay dead. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Satan did, in fact, bruise the heel of Jesus. But what we find here too, not only did we find the first messianic promise in the Bible, we also found the first redemptive promise in the Bible. Because God said, as soon as they healed, I'm sending someone. I'm sending a seed through you, through the woman, to make all this right. We find the first redemptive promise in the Bible, and it's through that bruise to the heel that Jesus took. Your last point on the paper and the blank. Jesus' wound is what heals us of our sin nature. That bruise, that wound that He had, that's what heals us 
of our very sin nature that happened all the way back there in Genesis chapter 3. Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 5 says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And here it is. Here's this bruise. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was, what is it? Bruised for our iniquities. It's exactly what he said would happen, right? Back in the book of Genesis. It's because Adam and Eve sinned. He said, oh, you'll bruise his heel. And it says right here, he was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. And then we can go through into the New Testament and we can see how Jesus was bruised for our iniquities. But it wasn't a permanent bruise. It wasn't a bruise to the head like He will deliver to the serpent one day. His wound heals us of that sin nature from all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And that is what Genesis 3.15 means. Questions? Comments? Yes? I was studying Mark a while back and... And I can't remember, someone was talking about this verse that they had questions about, and about mm-hmm. the bruises and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And when you study on Mark, it talks about how Christ is crucified on Golgotha, mm-hmm. and it's also called the place of the skull. Yeah. And so, and also, I always thought this picture, so you have Satan that bruises his heel, and then Christ is literally crucified on top of a skull. And right. it just always reminds me of that picture of he's, of he's bruising the head of the, the head of the devil. The yeah, time. that's awesome. At the same time he's getting bruised, well, he's actually bruising the head on, right. literally on a skull. It's just a cool picture. That is cool. Yeah, I've never, never seen that before. That is really cool. Anything else? Travis? Uh, yeah, I just, I just thought it was really cool when um, literally how it says, like, when you're talking about Percy. And it's just amazing. Literally, you throughout the whole Bible, it never says the Like, it never says where, like, oh, it was his seed, or oh, it was, no, it's right. always a first seed. It always came from. Yep. Not from, from her seed. It was God. Yep. So I that was What's kind of interesting, too, is even through, like, um, uh, I guess the progeny of Israel, yeah. you know, you're only considered Jewish if your mom is Jewish. Mm-hmm. Not. Right. If you're born of like a Jewish father and a Gentile mother, you're not Jewish. But if your mom's Jewish and your dad's not, then you are. So it's even carried through that way, through the the progeny throughout. So that's pretty interesting too. Anything else? All right, don't forget that if you are going to camp with us, stay after. We need to go over the details. And then, Caleb, since I didn't let you read, why don't you go ahead and pray us out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your time, Lord. We just get to come together and just get to hear from your word and what it says about questions we might have had for days or even years, God. I'm just going to go through them and see what your word actually says about it. Just having a written word that we can all look at, God, and we can study for ourselves and find out exactly what it says at any point in time. It just depends on how much we want to study, God, to be a true steward of your word. 
uh, I pray just as uh, we go to camp, God, that we'd be uh, um, good lights and good uh, leaders to the kids in camp and the seniors and junior, junior hires. They come into uh, the singles even, God, and that we can uh, just be really a light in the dark world, God, just taking chances to share your word and glorify you whenever we can. Uh, we love you and thank you in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.